In this episode of Board Game with Education, I'm joined by Jeff Engelstein, and we talk about how games can relate to other aspects of our life. And I mentioned this in the episode, and I want to say it here too. If you are interested in how games impact a larger world, I would check out anything that Jeff does. He has a book called Game Tech, a really, really awesome resource. And as well, that book is also a podcast. Uh, he does different segments on the Dice Tower podcast, and he used to be the host of the Ludology podcast. And before we get into the episode, I want to share with you something I'm going to be attending this spring. It's the Game-Based Learning Virtual Conference. It's hosted by the Game-Based Learning Alliance, hosted by also University XP. The goal of the conference is to connect academics, educators, designers, researchers, creators, and professionals in a space to discuss and share best practices using games, gamification, and game-based learning for teaching, learning, training, education, and develop. And what I really like, and I'm actually submitting a panel for this, and really the idea that I really like, the driving theme behind this conference is looking at games as a medium for teaching and learning as a way for developing a more connected and empathetic world. Specifically, how we can do this in the midst of the pandemic. And I know... As an educator, if you're listening to this or as a parent, as whatever way you kind of are interacting with the world right now, I think we all know and we can all say that empathy is something that really is important during this time. And I believe and the conference, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of other presenters are going to share and show how we can use games to encourage empathy and connection. If you are interested in submitting a proposal, you have until March 6th to submit one. Or if you're just interested in attending, you can go to GBLconference.com and you can use the coupon code BGE. That code will get you a discount and it will help support the Board Game with Education community. So again, GBLconference.com and the coupon code is BGE. All right, let's get to the show. Board Gaming with Education, a podcast for anyone curious about how games and education mix. We explore various topics like game-based learning, gamification, and board games, and the impacts they have on learning. Here's your host, Dustin Stats. Welcome to another topical episode of Board Game with Education. We're chatting with Roger. Thank you again for joining us this week. Yep. Glad to be back again, Dustin. And then we're also joined by Jeff here in just a moment. And we're going to be talking about what we can learn from games or what we can learn from life from games. And he's written a book about this. So I'm actually super excited to have this conversation with Jeff. And if you want to do anything and learn anything about how games interrelate with life, Jeff is the guy to check out. Um, he did a podcast on ludology through the Dice Tower, and we'll talk about that in the episode. And I know Roger and I were chatting a little bit about one episode you really liked. What was that episode, Roger? He's always done these little snippets in the Dice Tower podcast for for years and years and years. And you know, it's like I said, it's it's a lot of that has to tie back to you know some correlation to life and the thought process and psychologically, you know, how we're responding and games or what they're doing to us and whatever. But um, yeah, the the one that I thought was really interesting was a episode that they did back in uh, March uh, of last year. People are interested. It was episode um, six forty nine uh, of the Dice Tower, and it, he got into this. It's one of the most fascinating segments I, I think I've heard him do. But it was uh, it was a story about the women who are using war games to develop new uh, anti submarine tactics during World War II. And how effective they were at coming up with these these uh, new strategies to deal with you know the submarine problem that the United Kingdom and the Allies were dealing with uh, you know early in World War II. But uh, yeah, it was absolutely fascinating. I think it's also was based off of a he took some of the stuff from a book uh, which was called The Game of Birds and Wolves: The Secret Game by that uh, revolutionized the war uh, by Simon Parkin. Really, really cool stuff. Really makes you think about things. And I think it was just like, there's a great example of a game, kind of a gaming element that, you know, kind of had a big impact on a, you know, a world event. For sure. And I think one thing that you and I both know, and maybe some of our listeners are aware of that games are everywhere and we use them for so many things all the way from, you know, simulations, war simulations or 
uh, model UN is kind of like a game to even as as we grow up, that's how we experience the world through play. Um, so I'm excited to chat with Jeff and we're going to talk about these things before we get into the episode or that conversation. I mentioned something at the beginning of this episode, which is the game-based learning conference, and that's gblconference.com. Um, Jeff will be talking there, so I'm excited to go to his, uh, I guess, his talk on a topic at the conference. And I know that more information will be coming out about the conference soon. And you can go to gblconference.com. Um, that's hosted by Dave, who has been on the show a few times. And you can use the coupon code BGE for a discount on that conference. And it helps support our show, too. So let's listen to Jeff, and then we'll come back. Roger and I will have a little bit more to talk about the topic. All right, welcome to another topical discussion of Board Game with Education. I am thrilled to be joined by Jeff Engelstein today. Um, he is actually one of the guests that I really wanted to have on our show. Um, I think Ludology, his podcast, was one I really started listening to when I first got into podcast and gaming podcast. So I'm excited, Jeff. You are a award-winning tabletop game designer and author, and you have a new book coming out, and we're actually framing our discussion based on your book, Game Tech. And you're also a professor at NYU Game Center. Um, would you mind introducing yourself a little bit more and sharing a little bit about how you got into games and game design? Sure. Uh, well, first, thanks for having me. I'm I'm excited to uh, to be here and always happy to talk about games. Um, but you know, I mean, just my history in gaming. I you know, it goes all the way back. Uh, you know, when I was growing up, I used to play lots of games uh, always as a family. And um, actually, in high school, designed some video games. Um, I had a few published games on the Apple II, which I enjoyed but doing, but never really, you know, followed up much on the video game front. And, uh, you know, spent a lot of time, you know, playing and, and, and learning new games and stuff like that all through, uh, through college and, and after I got married. But I got involved in podcasting um, in the early 2000s and, and talking about games and, and a theory of games and, and kind of analytically looking at games, which ultimately led to the Ludology podcast. And just as part of that process of thinking about games and how games are designed and trying to dissect them and uh, particularly the psychology of games and the way that they relate to other things in the world, you know, I, I decided to, hey, why don't I try to take some of this and design uh, my own games? And so kind of went into that and uh, enjoyed that aspect of it almost as much as talking about games. Uh, and so I've continued to uh, to design and and from that, you know, wrote books about game design and, and as you mentioned, also teach the classes that over at uh, NYU Game Center, which all of which has really deepened my appreciation for game design and made me realize how little I and all of us actually know about people's relationship to games. Right. And I'm excited to chat more about how you came into that idea of looking at games through uh, different life lessons. Um, I was reading game tech and I'm not, <laughs> math is not my forte. I have my background is English language, teaching English language arts and uh, kind of looking at some of those, uh, I guess, lessons that you've learned through math of games is really cool or applying math through into games. Uh, before, before we get there though, I want to kind of frame our discussion by defining the topic of a game. We've defined this a few times on the show and everyone has their different perspectives on this topic. Um, but for the sake of our conversation, maybe it'd be good to kind of have your definition of what is a game. My definition of a game has kind of evolved over the years. Uh, but uh, I, currently, my, my basic uh, definition of a game is, is an activity where there are some rules of conduct um, that kind of get in the way of you doing whatever it is you're trying to do the most efficient way. And that typically, but not always has some sort of conclusion or, uh, you know, end goal, you know, the, the classic example, of course, being like golf, you know, if, if your aim is to get a ball into a hole, there are a lot easier ways to do it than all of the restrictions that golf puts in place or soccer, trying to put a ball in the net, but you're only allowed to use your feet. Um, you know, games are about the, the restrictions that we place on activities and, and the way that we all agree to adopt that these are the rules of behavior. So that, that's sort of my broad definition, which, you know, I, I find interesting just kind of sociologically of, of why we enjoy doing that and also how that 
goes into other areas of human behavior, like, you know, uh, governments and societies and religions and clubs. And, you know, there, there's so many different things where we agree to adopt a set of rules at, that define how we're going to behave in an activity and towards each other. Right. And that's, that's interesting. A couple points there is, I think when I've interviewed game designers that are, I don't know if this is maybe just my experience, but that are, have been doing it for a while, a lot of times they've said they're definition of game has evolved over time it's changed and it's actually opened up to include more things than they had originally imagined but also you mentioned how in society we follow a set of rules and that's something i had mentioned to you in our emails what i think is super interesting is that magic circle and looking at the magic circle of a game and applying that kind of how we decide in a game environment what is beyond the magic circle and what is not and also how that applies to as teachers in our classroom and how we can kind of set up that, I guess, discussion for our students. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I think that's a, it's, it's a very powerful human nature to try to, you know, to, to fit in and to, to, to kind of have a group set of rules and, and have that sort of group identity. And one of the, um, you mentioned game tech. So just for those that aren't familiar with it, I, I'm, I'm on a podcast called The Dice Tower and uh, I have a little five minute segment that I do called Game Tech, which links games to society and math and psychology or, or vice versa, just kind of uses them to illustrate each other. And one of the things I talked about a couple of years ago was the distinction in terms of the magic circle between... Future Dustin here, and just really quick, the magic circle, and this is kind of paraphrased from Game Studies Wiki, is a unique space of play that games provide. So for example, within that game, certain rules make sense in the game, but really have no effect on the outside world. For example, in the Game Study Wiki, they use the example of playing tag. So if you're playing tag and you touch someone on the shoulder, they're it, right? We know that as a rule in the game of tag, but actually, if you touch someone on the shoulder in real life, it doesn't mean you're it, right? It It's not a rule of our world that everyone follows unless we're playing the game of tag. And what's really cool about the magic circle is there are some certain unwritten rules that kind of groups follow within game environments or within other environments. And so let's get back to the chat where Jeff talks a little bit about the magic circle. The distinction in terms of the magic circle between somebody who is a, is a cheater Right, and a cheater is somebody that pretends to follow the rules but really doesn't, versus what I termed the heretic, which is somebody that just like rejects the rules outright, and it's like I'm I'm not even in the system, I'm outside the system completely, and that traditionally, societies or just any group of people is that we treat the heretic much harsher than the cheater, you know, even even though the cheater tends to be subverting it, but at least you know we we prefer to be with people that at least pretend to go along with the magic circle and don't pop it completely, as opposed to people that are just outside it that say, you know, you, this magic circle is silly and I'm not even participating at all, that that's, that's much more, you know, psychologically damaging to people. And I think a classroom environment is kind of similar as well. So, I mean, everybody wants to kind of be part of it. And if you kind of create that strict, that, that structure, um, you know, even if people cheat, they, they'll do it within the system in a way. Right. I'm thinking about the students who are, who are trying to get away with doing certain things, but definitely catching yeah. on to it. <laughs> yeah. And they're, they're always there, but they, you know, I mean, the more successful ones pretend to go along and then just, you know, <laughs> rather than just outright, you know, just refuse to, to do whatever, just, you know, stand up and go out of the bed, you know, whatever. They'll, they'll pretend right. to have a pass rather than just reject the whole pass system. Right. Right. And it's, it's funny because I think for me as a teacher, I kind of think about some of my quote unquote favorite students. I know we're not supposed to have favorites, but the ones that I kind of, I guess, get a kick out of or really enjoy being around um, are the ones that are kind of uh, maybe the quote unquote cheaters or rule benders in my classes. <laughs> awesome. So one, one thing I want to ask is you, you started thinking about this idea of games or life lessons through games. Um, I know in my experience, I'm trying to think back of when I first maybe looking back when I'm thinking about a game and when I learned something through playing a game was probably Monopoly and counting backwards and how that actually ended up applying to like a real practical job working at a restaurant through the drive through And I'm learning how to count backwards to move the cars through the line quicker. 
Um, but I'm wondering for your experience, when was the first time you either saw a life lesson through a game or you decided that there is an avenue to explore there? Huh. It's an interesting question. I, you know, I certainly, um, when I, we started playing diplomacy, um, I learned that certain people that I didn't think were capable of lying turned out to be very, very good at it. Uh, so that was, (laughs) that was interesting. Um, but yeah, I mean, in terms of, you know, kind of connecting it larger to life rather than playing games, it, rather than coming from within games, I, I mean, I, there was two things that really kind of spoke to me, um, uh, kind of outside the world of gaming. Uh, although the first kind of is related is the book called Godel Escher Bach by Douglas Hostetter, where he takes a lot of different things. You know, he, he has uh, in, in the in the book there's there's little plays that are done, and there's there's uh, you know little little games and activities that you play or whatever. But it, but it's all in the service of this larger concept of how. Um, of, of Godel's incompleteness theorem, uh, which we won't go into, but and how that relates to Escher's art and Bach's music and how they're all connected. And the idea of taking these different spheres of, you know, what are usually taught discreetly and pulling them together is very powerful to me. And, and, and I saw the same thing in um, this TV series back in the 70s called Connections. And also The Ascent of Man was, was from the same team where, you know, they, they, kind of trace these concepts or, or made like, you know, you, you have this thing over here and this thing over there, and you think that they're totally different, but by drawing connections between them, you can reveal a deeper truth. And I, I've always been fascinated by that. And, you know, when I was uh, approached with the idea of, you know, or had the idea of to try to do some podcasts, I was kind of naturally drawn to, you know, Hey, yeah, I mean, reviewing games or whatever, a lot of people do that, but what I'd like to do is try to take games and, and, explore this idea of connections with other with other things and when i first started it i thought maybe when i was doing these game tech segments you know maybe i could do 50 of them that i could find something interesting to talk about and you know i'm still doing it now you know 15 years later and i've done hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these things and i'm just finding it a bottomless well to explore of the way that games illustrate so much around us and that's i mean that's so true and i like your your example of uh, mentioning that you had thought there was only 50, but then found out there's a bottomless pit. And I am I feel like I'm in the same boat doing this podcast and kind of learning about games and how we can align games with learning outcomes and then looking at even soft skills that you can use in games for developing soft skills. And it's, uh, it's a lot. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I have a, a business as well that I run, uh, you know, and, and I've 100% have taken lessons from games in terms of how to structure business proposals and to negotiate with people and stuff like that. There's, there's a lot. Right. That's, yeah, that's so true. I mean, I'm just thinking about my experience too in rule book writing. I mean, being able to write a clear, concise rule book that the player can understand is very important for explicit instructions as a teacher. And super duper hard. You know, so I'd mentioned that I started <laughs> yeah. with video games. And after I did my first, when I was doing my first game, I thought the rule book was going to be the easiest thing. Writing the rules would be the easiest thing because I've written compu- computer programs forever, right? And that's what a game is, right? I mean, that's what rules are, is you just break down the structure of the activity into smaller and smaller tasks until, you know, each, you know, in essence, each line of the rules is one line of your program. And I was very, very wrong. And, you know, I, I don't come, it's by my mother uh, was a teacher. I, I until I kind of came into teaching later after I did the game design. But, you know, that was when from going through that and seeing people try to decipher my rules that were written like a computer program and functionally everything was there. But I realized that, you know, the way that rules need to be written, not just to list the rules, but to teach the rules and to guide the players and to give them landmarks. So, you know, you start at a very high level to kind of map out the territory and then you drill down and drill down. You got to make sure that you keep everybody oriented, you know, and, and this is all stuff that of course is, you know, well-developed in educational theory over the years. And I, I kind of rediscovered it uh, the hard way. So yeah, it's the, the rules writing is, is a whole other uh, discipline that, that also is way more complex than I realized at first glance. Right, right. We were recently just talking on the podcast about uh, using rules to scaffold the game or um, then comparing that to giving instructions for an activity. But yeah, I think that's a great parallel to draw, I guess. So I want to ask too, we're kind of talking about some interactions with our experience in games, but if we are maybe a casual gamer, I'm someone maybe who plays a few modern board games I've played a few, uh, or maybe I'm really into hobby board games, but I don't really design games. What 
might be some lessons or some things I can see through our everyday interactions that might also appear in games. One of my favorite areas and, and is uh, a psychological phenomenon called loss aversion. And this is another thing that kind of came to sideways. I didn't just all of a sudden learn about loss aversion. I started doing game techs and doing kind of different little psychology things and talking about different interesting research projects. And as I started exploring it, I realized that all of them had sort of a central theme. Um, and, and it turned out that that, that theme had actually been discovered and named um, back in the, the 80s and 90s um, and, and named a loss aversion. And, and the core idea of it is that um, if you get, say, I find $20 on the, on the street and pick it up, I'm going to feel good. Um, if I get home and realize I, I accidentally dropped $20 on the street, I'm going to feel bad. Um, but the magnitude of the feeling for losing $20 is worse than the, the happiness I got at gaining $20. So the losses in our mind outweigh gains. And that little psychological quirk of humans, um, and there's a lot of exploration into why evolutionarily we would have developed that way or whatever, and there's a lot of stuff that makes sense. But but you know, it's it's been well established. And I think when I when I say that to people, you know, they naturally say, Oh yeah, you're right. Um, you know, it's I, I definitely feel that. And and that bleeds into so many aspects of life uh, from how we approach risk, from how we um, how we can frame things to other people. So if you frame something in terms of gains, you know, gaining a lot versus gaining a little versus, you know, losing a lot or losing a little or uh, give people little nudges along a road. Like if I give somebody, if I give somebody the first couple of steps in a journey, they're much more likely to finish that journey. You know, there's been studies with coupon books and things where if you give somebody a coupon with a couple of pre-punches versus a coupon with no pre-punches, um, but still the same number of punches left to finish it, that people are much more likely to finish the the punched coupon because they feel like if they don't, they're kind of losing something, right? They've, there's, they're invested in a way. And so there's a lot of psychology that all comes back to loss aversion. And it's one of those things that once you you hear about it and start thinking about it, you realize that it's everywhere, but you don't, you know, you, you, you don't pick up on it right away. And you're still going to be prone to it when you know about it, but at least, you know, you can reflect on your, your actions and things and have a little bit more self-awareness about why you're choosing to do a certain things rather than other things. Right. And I wonder if there's a, a maybe correlation or uh, parallel to uh, people that have a high tolerance for risk in their experience with loss aversion, because I imagine those that are willing to kind of invest up front that they might lose something they're uncomfortable with for the thing that they might gain in the future. I'm just thinking from like an entrepreneurial mindset is kind of think entrepreneurs are more willing to kind of throw some stuff in with the risk that they might lose it, but in the long run, hopefully gain something from it. Uh, yeah, I, I think that that's um, that's a good point. And studies have shown for sure that people can be trained out of it. Like if you're a stockbroker and you do something over and over again, then you, you know you you start to lose that same feeling that you do if you're just a home investor. Yeah, it becomes it, you know you you see things in a different way. Um, but yeah, also you know everyone has different risk tolerances, and you know typically with these kind of studies, it's you know it's never a hundred percent, right? It's like eighty right. twenty is like a huge result versus uh, you know. Uh, uh, you know, you, you're never going to see something that's a hundred percent of what people are going to do. So it's always going to be a tendency. Um, but yeah, there's, there's in, whole industries that have gone up around this, you know, casinos go to a lot of trouble to reduce loss aversion, right? That's why they give you chips instead of have you play with real money. Uh, that's why you can get, change money for chips at the table, but you have to walk all the way across the casino to turn your chips back into money. Mm. That's why your chips are only good at one casino and you can't carry them to another casino and use them there, right? That there's, there's all this stuff that's designed to make you abstract the gains and the losses um, uh, so, so that it doesn't trigger people's kind of innate uh, feeling about that. Right, right. Yeah, that it kind of reminds me of, I play some poker and like shuffling my chips, I kind of get, uh, I guess, uh, attached to them, I suppose, too. Um, so when might we encounter game-like elements that we might see in our everyday life that we might not have noticed in the first place? Uh, well, you know, there's a lot of loss aversion stuff, but, you know, a lot of things, um, 
I don't think they do it. Any, I guess they still do it. But one of my favorite examples was, uh, you know, like uh, loyalty clubs, right? loyalty cards and points and stuff like that. I mean, those are all basically games. Panera, when they introduced their program, I really kind of thought it was interesting because the way they do it is, um, you know, a lot of things they say, like for every, you know, 200 points you get, you get $5 off your next purchase or whatever it is, right? And Panera didn't do that, right? They they said, you every time you get a visit, randomly, sometimes you'll get an award. Sometimes you won't. Um, and uh, so it, it basically became like this big slot machine. Um, you know, and sometimes they'd say like, you know, sometime within your next three trips, you know, you're going to get a reward. But And you also never knew what the reward was going to be. It could be anything from an entirely free meal to just a cup of coffee or a bagel or something, right? And so that was gamification in a very... I won't say underhanded, but you know, a certainly manipulative way, um, because that kind of random reward has consistently been shown to be the most addictive type of reward, which is, of course, how slot machines work. Um, is they, you know, they they you never know when you're going to get the payout, and that that just makes it that much um, that much that much more attractive, and and much more that you're going to want to go back and keep trying and trying and trying until you get that little dopamine hit. Um, so that's, that's, uh, one example that I, I always find intriguing that's, that's out there in, in the real world that they kind of gussy it up as, as a loyalty thing, but don't treat it as much as a game. Right. Right. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of different lo- loyalty programs. I know yeah, one that is kind of, I guess not so much a loyalty program, but kind of has to do with the same randomness, uh, expectation with, because my wife and I lived in Taiwan and they did a lottery system for receipts. So whenever you purchase something, you had a number that you can enter at the end of two months to see if you won some money. And as a way to incentivize businesses to make sure they're keeping their their sales, their receipts on the books, because if someone's not getting their their ticket to the lottery, they might go let the government know they're not following the, the protocol. Um, but yeah, at the end of the two months, we check. I mean, we won... I want to say we won probably about a hundred dollars over the three years we were there. So not like not a crazy amount, but you tend to win like uh, three to five dollars every two months with them. <laughs> so I want to ask maybe before we go into our game, if someone is wanting to kind of grab some life lessons out of games, what are some things you might tell them to pay attention to or to kind of consider? You know, I, I think there's a lot of lessons just in general that we can learn. I mean, I, I think it's really important to expose children to games. And, you know, I think that if you think back on the, the first games that we teach kids, they barely fit the definition of, of a game. Uh, well, they fit my definition. Uh, but Candyland um, and uh, games like that um, are really have zero choices. Uh, you or you know, there's not even any real randomness other than the initial shuffle of the deck in Candyland. You just, you flip the card and you do what it says and shoots and ladders, you know, you spin the spinner and you do what it says. And some people like turn up their nose and say, oh, you know, it's crazy. Why do we bother doing this? It's just, you know, a waste of time. You're just doing it. But, you know, there's, there's critical stuff that's in there and like, you know, taking turns. How do you take turns and how do you wait for your turn? Uh, just the simple thing of, you know, winning and losing and dealing with that gracefully, you know, and sometimes from based on what we see in the public sphere, you know, there's plenty of people that either forgot about that lesson or haven't really <laughs> taken it to heart, you know, and then from there you, you build up and you start learning about, you know, tactics and strategies. And then you learn about um, planning is another critical thing. You know, when you start getting into some more advanced games is, okay, this is, this is the goal. This is what I'm trying to do. What are the steps that I need to do to get there? And, um, and then, you know, ultimately, you know, you get into when you have your more complicated things of trying to understand systems and the way that things interact with each other. And, and, you know, even um, the social, the soft social things of negotiation and, you know, trying to convince somebody to attack somebody else instead of you that you're not really winning. You're actually, you look like you're winning, but you're not really winning. Um, so it's really, you know, games are, are in many ways a microcosm of larger society, but they're in a more manageable bite size way because it's, you know, you know what the goal is, they're time bounded, you know, there's, there's more definitive rules for what you are and are not allowed to do. There's certainly plenty of really good lessons to be drawn from, from playing games from a very young age. Right. I agree 100%. I think one thing too is, is uh, the low stakes environment of a game, right? We have, we have, uh, you can simulate the, um, oh my gosh, I'm drawing a blank. What's the, 
I want to say United Kingdom, but that's not the word I'm looking for. United Nations? Oh, yes. I don't know why I couldn't think of that word. <laughs> it's podcasting brain. Um, but yeah, the Model UN, where it's it's a very low stakes environment and you kind of go through that process of what it looks like, but in a game-like environment. All right, Jeff, stick around for the game. I'm going to have a follow-up discussion about bar chat with Roger, and then we'll be back to play our game. All right, and we're back. So, Roger, you listened to that conversation. What was maybe one thing that really stood out to you? Um, I think Jeff always brings up a lot of really interesting points. Uh, I, I think um, kind of like the psychological points that he pointed out, like, you know, how we respond to things, um, particularly about the, I thought some of the, the gambling examples he gave, uh, particularly like, you know, when you find $20 as opposed to losing it, that the losing is far more, uh, has far more of a negative psychological effect on you compared to the positive psychological effect that you have for, for gaining that kind of money. And then how the casinos and stuff do those sorts of things and being in a, in a state where that's one of my, our primary uh, industries. I'm not super interested in it, obviously, because I'm, I'm a, I've been around it, you know, and like, oh, you go gamble. No, I don't. It's not really that interesting, but it is games. But I guess it's just, there's something about that, that type of gaming that just doesn't, I don't know, capture my interest as much. I, I don't know what the reasoning behind that is, but but it is fascinating the psychological things that this that the casinos do, right, to get people to do things. And I mean, that's all. A lot of it's all by design, whether people realize it or not, right? I mean, because the the sense is to keep you playing so that you're spending more money and and they're making more money. I mean, they're a business. They're 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 obviously trying to make money. Um, I mean, you could even give the example of one of the things that I know a lot of them do is that, you know, the drinks are free. And uh, obviously, you know, when you start on the effects of alcohol, you're not, you're not going to make as good a judgment. So you're going to continue to dump more money in the machine. So as long as you're, as long as you're sitting at a, some type of a, you know, if you're sitting at the table, you're playing a, a machine or whatever, I mean, that drinks are free. What's one of the things that's n not in a casino that you don't, the, some object that we constantly, what the, you don't, they don't have them anywhere. As a clock. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They don't have those. There's no clocks anywhere. And I mean, obviously they don't have, you know, the way they've designed them too, where there's not like windows to look outside just so that you, you get lost, you know, where you, you don't see anything and they, 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 you know, they want you to lose track of time. And I don't think it's, like a devious, you know, there's anything devious there. It's just, that's the way they're going to keep you engaged, you know, to continue to keep playing. I mean, we look at casinos and that's very high stakes, high stakes games. That's not really games, games we use in education. And, and one thing I had, uh, kind of went down this road because it's true. There's a psychological link between some things that are in games that also are in, what can see casinos take advantage in gambling and that's that attachment to whatever uh you know jeff had mentioned the attachment to the 20 dollars bill and one thing when i looked into developing world's xp which was a gamification toolkit was looking at these positive aspects of gamification and kind of steering away from some manipulative aspects because there is there are a lot of ways to manipulate human behavior in gamification um and one thing i really like to do with that kit was, and this is apparent, I'm surprised we didn't talk about it in the episode, is apparent in RPG games, is creating your character. Because when you are the one responsible for creating your character, you grow more attached to that character and you're more engaged in playing or role-playing that character. And it's true, I mean, even video games, like I've been playing this NBA game and you can create your own person and you design like its face, its hair, facial hair, you design all that. And so just going through that kind of process, you grow more attached to to the character. And I think a lot of games are able to employ some of those things. And I know even just choosing your color, that's kind of something that probably a low-level attachment to, to the game too. Well, and you mentioned that, but I, I honestly, Dustin, I think that's what the huge appeal of Dungeons & Dragons is now. And 
I, I think people that had been playing it, you know, before it, it it's become so much more common, like people are very much more aware of it, you know, in much more of a positive sense. I mean, it did have some negative uh, stuff that went with it, you know, initially it's at, at certain points, you know, while the game was being played. I think that's more because of particularly technologies and social platforms and things have brought it to light where people were seeing people playing it. And now, you know, people that wouldn't even have maybe been interested go, well, that looks really cool. I, I want to try that. And all of a sudden that's caused this huge boom, you know, on that. But I think that's that appeal. It's that creative process. Oh, I get to make something that's me and I get to customize it. And, you know, maybe I get to step out of my reality and be somebody that I'm not or pretend to be somebody I'm not. And it's, I, it, that's what the appeal is, you know, and, and, and I, I don't see that diminishing at all. Right. Right. So anything else maybe to talk about before we move into our game? Yeah, I think real quick, the other thing I thought was really interesting that he mentioned was the the thing with Panera, that they weren't doing the points. They just said, well, you may get a reward if you come in. And that how that not knowing kind of thing, same gambling kind of psychology that casinos use, you know, was super effective in getting people to come in like, Oh, well then one of the next three, oh, I might get something. What is it going to be? You know, it's just that, that just lures people in, you know? And I mean, that's why I think even like the lottery and all that stuff does well, you know, like, oh, well, you know, I'm just going to draw a couple of bucks. You never know. You know, I, I might, you know. Right, right. I mean, that's, that's another, that's another min- manipulative aspect of gamification is the random effect of receiving something positive is much more, addictive than always receiving something like a positive feedback you know and i wonder i wonder sometimes some of the games that are really successful that that's if you it it would be interesting to look at or do those games have kind of those aspects in them or do all games is that kind of inherent you know what i'm saying like does that game got that thing where that's why it's so popular of a of a game because of that kind of that reward system or something similar that they've got baked in there either by design or not by design, right? I don't know. Right. I, I think it depends on the game. It, it kind of reminds me of something, I'm a game I downloaded on my mobile phone recently, and I was just, you know, scrolling through. I think it popped up on Facebook, and it looked like this game that I used to play a while ago, and I was like, okay, maybe I'll check this out. So I downloaded it. The first couple times I played, it was super easy, and then it got a little bit more difficult, and now it's really hard to get back up to the high score that I originally got. And I went and looked at some of the reviews in the game, and a lot of people were saying the same thing. Like, I, they wonder if in the design of the game they make it easy when you first play, so you get hooked into to wanting to play and wanting to do better. And then every once in a while you get a good game because maybe it's like a block game. You're like combining blocks together. And maybe they give you good blocks to be able to perform better Every once in a while, I wonder, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I wonder if, I... well, you know, and it just, just to kind of springboard off of that. I mean, it, the, I mean, there's been studies and stuff that have been done. And I mean, um, there's a book that I read a few years ago. I thought was really interesting. Um, uh, McGonagall is the author. Reality is broken. I believe is the name of the book. Yeah. I think, I think. And, I me. <laughs> yeah. And, but what she was saying, like you're saying, well, getting some you in there, something easy that actually what one of the, according to her, what she talks about, about in the book is that it's really that losing and not beating that thing or whatever is really what hooks people in, you know, that like you're actually not being successful is actually more rewarding and actually kind of addicts people into those things more and more and more because like, oh, well, I didn't get it this time, but I, you know, I'm going to try it again and I didn't get it this time. So I'm going to try again, you know, and it just gets you, you know, totally psychologically hooked, you know, and just plays into our, you know, like he's like Jeff mentioned that reward system, you know, even though that's the negative, but somehow that had a positive effect. It's, it's really interesting. Yeah. I think, uh, I think it depends on the player. I would say, I mean, like most things and, it, I like those games. I don't know. What, I think there's a term for it, but it's. I know the video game series Demon Souls and Bloodborne are kind of known for this kind of brutal, tough game that is very difficult. 
once you die, you go back to the beginning, like the old school video games, like Mario and stuff. Once you die, you're all the way back to the beginning of that level of the game. Or that says even like Di- Diablo or something. Well, uh, I remember when I played the original Diablo, you know, from Blizzard. It was like that. Like if we were, when we, when we didn't have, but we, my friend of mine, I, the friend of mine and I used to play landline stuff because that was the only way to play multiplayer. And we'd get on the, you know, phone or whatever and we'd hook it through a landline. But while we were playing together there, if you lost on any level, it kicked you right back to the beginning. You'd have to go through, and like we get like halfway or three quarters all the way through the thing and, oh crap, we're both dead. And we'd have to start completely over. So yeah, so same same kind of idea. Yeah, and I don't I don't know. I think I played the third one. I don't know if I played the second one, but in in the first one, did you also lose your like your all your equipment and gold and stuff? And so you had to go back to go get it. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it was like yeah. that with when you're playing with multiplayer with somebody. Right. Yeah, you like you lost like everything. Like it or it got like stuck down there where you were, like it left it laying there or something along those lines. So yeah, you'd have to, yeah, you'd lose all your gear and you go, oh, got to completely start completely over. We don't keep everything we have. We got to start from square yeah. one. <laughs> right. All right. Uh, so Roger, let's move into our game. All right, so we're going to play Wits and Wagers, and I already played this game with Jeff. Again, if you choose or if you say your answer and it's closer than Jeff's answer, that's one point. If you decide to change to a different answer and that answer ends up being closest, it's one point. Or you can double down on your own answer and end up scoring two points if that's closest. So the question I have for you is what is the most someone has paid for a video game publicly? <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, I'm going to go 150000 All right, 150000 And then I have three other answers that you can choose from, so you can choose to double down or switch. Three other answers are $103,000, $1.3 million, and $150,000. You said one hundred and fifty, dollars right? Mm-hmm. So you have yeah. <laughs> one of them's the same. <laughs> and then you have $1.3 million or 103000 So you can choose to double down on yours or switch. Um. Can I just stay with the one that I have or I have to double down? Yeah. I mean, if you, cause one of them's, one of them's the same, I guess. So you right. could, I guess you could, I'm, you could double down. You would get the points anyways. I yeah. Guess. I'll yeah. just double down on, okay. I'll, I'll double down on mine. All right. And we'll listen. Let's listen to Jeff's answers first. Oh, it's going to be really high. Cause I think there's been some obscure, cartridges you know cartridges and nintendo type stuff that have come out i'm gonna say twelve thousand dollars all right so twelve thousand dollars and then depending on whether you are closer or the co-host will score a point here um but then my three other answers are a hundred and three thousand dollars one point three million dollars and a hundred and fifty thousand dollars so you okay, can so I am way off. <laughs> that's <laughs> what that's a conclusion we're drawing here. Maybe. Unless you're really, really gaming the system. So what were those numbers again? 1.3 million? So $103,000, million, or $150,000. Okay. So you can choose to double down on your answer or choose one of these three answers for a point. And if you double down on your answer, it's two more points. Okay. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna switch. I think okay. I'm going to so switch to 103,000, 103,000. And the answer is 114,000. So you score a point there. That is the closest. So you for sure have one point. Um, okay. You could end up tying the co-host or not. So we'll find out when I record at a later date. Oh, okay. <laughs> and that the game is actually Mario. So you're right. It was a obscure cartridge and um, just a rare classic version of 1985 Mario. Um, I cool. guess, the one that was sold before was also another copy of Mario for a hundred thousand. So, yeah. 
Wow. I'm in the wrong line of business. <laughs> yeah, right, right. I think. So Jeff went with, he went with $12,000. I thought he went a little bit higher than that, but now I'm listening to his answer back again. So, and you're, you're, you stuck with yours. So the final answer is, okay, so Jeff switched to 103000 So it looks like you score two points and he scores one point because his is actually closer the 103 that he switched to but no wait no yeah he would win he would win one point right yeah i'm I'm still i'm still figuring out the rules of my own right. game <laughs> no he's he's closer yeah he's closer than he's closer yeah 114 and he's, he's 103 because he switched he's, he's 12,000 yeah. and i'm yeah, but I was thinking because you, you, you doubled down, but that doesn't count because you're still not closest. Yeah, I didn't right. realize I'm, I'm, I'm still learning my own rules. I'm thirty six thousand away. <laughs> He's only twelve thousand. It's a, away. it's tough because I've tried to like, how do I play this right. on a podcast? I <laughs> <laughs> and before we have one last chat with our guest Jeff and Roger, the co-host for this episode, I know we have some designers out there in the audience, and I'm trying to navigate this post-COVID world, just like everyone else out there. And I'm curious because I had taken the game Wits and Wagers and created it for the podcast episode. I'm curious to hear from you because we have, we're going to play this a couple more times on the show. Curious if this and these rules make sense. Reach out to me if I could, you know, modify anything. It's a little late now, but moving into season 12, I would love to hear from you. Or if you have any other ideas for games we could play on the show, reach out to me, podcast at boardgamewitheducation.com. Awesome, Jeff. So thank you again. And before you go, um, would you mind sharing a little bit about your book and then also any other projects you're working on or where our listeners can reach out to you? Sure. Uh, well, my latest book is called Game Production, Prototyping and Producing Your Board Game. Um, so that's available on uh, Amazon or Barnes and Noble or wherever. And it's it's rather than talking about game design, it talks about the physical aspects of like how you make a card and how you make tokens and and how you deal with uh, printing and production and stuff like that. So um, it's it's an area that I get, get a ton of questions on all the time. So I thought it was good to do. And I've got a um, my latest game out is called Super Skill Pinball. Uh, which is a board game version of pinball, which has four different pinball tables in the pack. And we just announced a new expansion called the uh, Super Scope Pinball Ramp It Up, which is uh, going to be coming out over the summer. So I'm, I'm excited about that. Awesome. So thank you so much again. I know I learned a bunch from you coming on the show and thank you again for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. Roger, thank you again for coming on the show. And if anyone wanted to reach out to you, how could they do that? Uh, I think probably just Roger at boardgamingwitheducation.com. Uh, that email's probably the best way to get a hold of me. Uh, my, my my personal Twitters are more at evolving more. I mean that's that's another one where I kind of more um, kind of keep it to that. I have a couple other Twitter accounts, but they're they're not really tied to this stuff as much. And you've been working on our Kickstarter calendar, which is super awesome. Any any good games that have been added there recently? Uh, you could take a look. I mean, there's, there's, I haven't seen them go live yet today, but there's a couple of Kickstarters. Uh, one of them's called Auction Web. It looks, it's definitely kind of like a finance sort of game. And then there's another game called uh, Oil Town, um, which fits in uh, history and social studies. And I'd also mention too, uh, Cora Quest. Uh, which somebody on Facebook pointed out when I went and looked at it, it was great was uh, Dan and Cora been on the dice tower before and used to do a segment, but it was a game that she designed and uh, it's kind of fantasy themed or whatever, but to try to get people to feel more comfortable, it's really cool, but that ends tomorrow. Oh, geez. So after this will be, this will be released after. So maybe they have, they'll have some um, late pledges. Yeah. Well, they'll probably have, I would imagine have late pledges and stuff, but it's, it's done really, really well. Yeah. Um, I could point out a couple other things. Um, well, before, I mean, just core quest, that was actually, um, it's really cool. Cause it's a father daughter that they, a project they did during lockdown. And recently they were on BBC, uh, interviewed for their game. So yeah, it's a, it's a really cool, clever idea. And essentially you can go on to their website and upload your own 
drawings and then print them and then use them in the game. Because the whole idea was her daughter had done a lot of the art and then they had other other kids, you know, submit artwork for the game too. So really cool idea, really clever uh, aspect or take on um, kind of a dungeon crawler game. Right, right, right. Exactly. It's really cool that she she kind of designed it and stuff. So, I mean, that's definitely one. And there's a couple more I could just mention. Another one's called Chamber of Wonders. Uh, it's kind of a social studies style game. Um, kind of a British, you're playing, playing the role of like uh, uh, British members of the aristocracy. And then uh, on the 26th, supposed to get a genotype, a Mendelin genetics game from Genius Games. Uh, that was a Kickstarter, but it's getting delivered. And I think it's that's the day it's supposed to go to retail, too, from what I understand. But that's like a, this game that they've done about genetics, which is based off of, uh, you know, Gregor Mendel. And uh, so you're kind of doing stuff with the pea plants, you know, how the Punnett squares and all that kind of stuff works. So it looks it looks really cool. That's awesome. And then you can go to boardgamewitheducation.com backslash Kickstarter dash calendar to check out the calendar that Rogers put together. And essentially it's, it's not all the games on Kickstarter, right? We are curated towards mainly games for learning that we can use maybe to, to kind of teach something or um, just a great family style game. So you're not going to find stuff like kingdom death monster. Yep. And if somebody, yeah. And somebody sees something in our Facebook group and, like uh, that individual told me about it and I threw Quora Quest up, which was a great idea. You know, let me know. I mean, I try to catch everything I can, but I, I certainly probably miss things, you know, from time to time. Right. So thank you again. Thank you again, Roger, for coming on and we'll be back. Yep. Yeah. Thanks for having me on, Dustin. appreciate it. Hey, and before you go, did you know if you go to boardgamewitheducation.com and sign up, and register an account with our website, you'll receive 500 Edugamer points. That is a rewards-based system for our community. So sign up, boardgamewitheducation.com, create an account, 500 Edugamer points. That is equal to $5 off your purchase, any purchases you make in the store. And as always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, suggestions, reach out to me, podcast at boardgamingwitheducation.com. All right. And I will see you or hear from you or you'll hear from me next week. Thank you for listening in this week. If you liked what you heard, be sure to let us know. You can find us on social media as Board Gaming with Education or BGE Games or email us at podcast at boardgamingwitheducation.com. If you want to support our podcast, be sure to check out our support page on our website. As always, teach better, learn more, and most importantly, play more. Thank you for listening and until next time.